of course, celebrating Mother's Day. And on Mother's Day, we focus on the attributes of mothers, the qualities, the characteristics of mothers, and all the things which are, are wonderful about mothers. Uh, about What is wonderful about mothers? Let me, uh, there's so many things. It's like it's almost off my mind. No. Mothers who give us life and mothers who care for us, mothers who feed us and clothe us and train us, educate us, look after us. Mothers with their sons who are still doing their sons' washing when their sons are 25, 30, 35, 40, all that kind of thing. Mothers are just great. So we're celebrating the attributes of, of, of motherhood. But, uh, of course, we also want to celebrate the attributes and characteristics of God. And over the past couple of months here at Gateway, we've been talking about what God is like. We've been uh, basing this on a little book called None Like Him by a lady called Jen Wilkins. Really helpful little book. Uh, if you're been here regularly, then you'll know you'll be kind of up to speed with the series if this is your first Sunday. Uh, you're so welcome, but just to help you explain what we're doing. And I, I'm going to kind of give a little recap of the series this morning because we're, we're coming to an end of it. Uh, actually, we're going to, we're f- focusing today on the theme of, of God being sovereign. We're actually going to spend two Sundays looking at that. I'm going to speak on that theme this morning, and next Sunday, God willing, Richard Stamp's going to be speaking to that theme as well. But let's just give, I'll give a recap of what we looked at over the last few weeks, which for those of you who are new here will help to get you up to speed, and for those who've been here, help to remind you of what we've been looking at. So we've seen how, the, how God is the God of no limits. He is limitless. And we human beings are meant to reflect God in some way. We are made in the image of God, but we're not meant to rival him. And our human problems really start when we, rather than reflecting God, we seek to rival him. We try and be God ourselves. And you know, it's really difficult to be a healthy, happy, complete human being if you're trying to be God. If you try to be God, you just take too much pressure upon your shoulders and everything becomes difficult and problematic for you and for other people. God is different from us. God is not limited in the way that we are. God is infinite. He's infinitely strong. But God doesn't use his strength to crush us. Actually, God in his strength carries us. The Bible talks about God being our our shepherd. He's one who leads us. The Bible describes God in, in motherly terms. He's like a mother, like a hen who stretches out and cares for his people. So we see God's infinite, limitless strength, but it's a strength which is good news for us because we put our trust in him and he cares for us and carries us. We've seen that God is the God of infinite mystery, that you can never get to the bottom of God. He's beyond fathoming. He's so vast. You try and think about infinite things, try and think about the scope, the scale of the universe, and now puny human minds soon run out of capacity. We'll try and think about God, and our minds soon run out of capacity. You'll never get to the end of exploring God. But rather than being frustrating, actually, that is good news. It means that God is infinitely worthy of our praise because there's always more to discover about him, which is praiseworthy. There's always more beauty to see, always more splendor to see, always more delightful things to discover. And that draws us into praise and worship of our fathomless, uh, infinitely mysterious God. God is mysterious because he's so different from us, but in his grace, he's not distant from us. The infinite, fathomless, mysterious God comes close to us and makes himself known to us, which is amazing. He's the God of infinite creativity. God alone is self-existence. God is the only one in the universe who was not created. He has always existed. He is the uncreated creator. And that's good news for us, because when we come to God, one of the things we know about God is that he is the God who made all things, but he's also the God who's making all things new. 
that we come to God who makes us new. And we Christians believe that he will make all things new. He will renew the earth and the whole universe and restore things to how they should be as we celebrate new life today of babies being born. Actually, that's a picture of what God does, that God makes things new and there's an excitement and a joy about that. He's the God of infinite provision. God doesn't need anything. He's needful of nothing, but he is needed by all. God has everything he needs uniquely. And that's good news for us because it means that he is able to meet our needs. He's not lacking in supply. He's not lacking in provision. He can meet the needs that we have. He's the God of infinite days and infinite sameness. God doesn't change. We should never say, you never, because humans always change. We say you always and you never, and it's not actually true because no human is always the same. We change, we fickle, but God does not change. God is always the same. He's changeless. He's the God of infinite days and infinite sameness, and that's good news for us because it means that God is in total control of time, and that's good news because we can trust God for the timing of our days, and we can trust him for his perfect timing. Just talking to Sharon, who's Dan's mum, who's Joshua's grandmother, and saying she remembers being here when gave thanks for Dan. How old's Dan now? Can you remember? It's a test. <laughs> mum? 31? So, so 31 years ago, giving thanks for Dan here. Where's 31 years gone? Now giving thanks for Dan's son, Joshua. Our days fly by, but God is in control of our days. He has control of time. That's good news for us. He's the God of infinite place. God is everywhere. God sees everything. And that's good news for us. It means that we're never alone. It means that someone is watching over us. And he's the God of infinite knowledge and infinite power. And knowledge and power are things that we as human beings pursue. The trouble is that our pursuit of knowledge and power often become corrupt or often distorted. We pursue knowledge and then we use knowledge in ways which is corrupt. And we pursue power and power has a tendency to corrupt. But when we think about God's knowledge and power, his knowledge and power is not corrupt, not distorted, not abusive, not twisted. It's pure. And we're called to know him more and we're called to experience his power. Scripture we were looking at last week speaks about how uh, those of us who believe in Jesus, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us who believe. And so we come to the God who has infinite knowledge and infinite power and we say, God, I want to know you more and I want to know the reality of that resurrection power at work in my life. God is different from us, but the ways he's different from us are very good news for us. Now today, as I said, I want to focus on the theme of God's sovereignty, that God is the God of infinite rule. And these other attributes of God that I've just described qualify God to rule. God's qualified to be ruler because he is the God of no limits and he's the God of infinite mystery and he's infinitely creative and he's the God of infinite provision. All these things which are true about God actually qualify him to be ruler. And his rule is unlike the rule of human rulers because even the most powerful human ruler is still limited in the extent of their rule. But God is unlimited because he's the infinite God. And God's rule is more than just a question of brute force, brute Power. Now, power is the things to get things done. You get things done through power. Uh, but power is different uh, from authority. Authority is when you have the right to do something. And so you might have the power to do something, but not really the authority to do it. Or you might actually have authority to do something, but not really the power to see it through. 
Think about that in terms of human governments. It's possible to have lots of power, but not really to be a legitimate ruler. We might think about someone like Kim Jong-un, the ruler of North Korea. Extraordinary news this week about him and Donald Trump potentially meeting up. Absolutely mind-blowing stuff. But we might look at Kim Jong-un and think he doesn't really have legitimacy as ruler of North Korea with the kind of power over life and death that he wields. That seems an illegitimate power. So he's got power, but in a sense it's not a rightful authority. But then we might think about our queen, the British queen, who has amazing authority. Her head is on every stamp that you lick and on every coin in your pocket and every note in your wallet and her name, the Queen, Her Majesty, appears in every official document and your passport is written in her name. She has all authority, but she actually has no power. She can't actually do anything herself. The politicians have the power. God is different because God has both power and authority. And this is good news. It's good news for us. In terms of scripture, which I hope will illustrate this, it's Deuteronomy 26, which in these Bibles is on page 203. And if you have got one of these Bibles, I would like you to use it because I want us to read some of this passage together out loud. So it would be really helpful if you could actually see it in the version that we're reading it. So page 203, Deuteronomy 26. And uh, Grace is going to come and help me. Use that one. I'll just flick the switch again. Okay, let me set the scene for what's happening here. The story is this. People of Israel, God's chosen people, have been slaves in Egypt. And then God, with his miraculous power, has rescued them. God, through Moses, has led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They've had the miracle of crossing the sea and leaving the slavery of Egypt behind them. But rather than quickly getting to the promised land, they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because even though they've been set free from slavery, they're still thinking like slaves, and they often act in a rebellious way against God, who actually is their good master. And so for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. But now where we get to in Deuteronomy, they're about to enter the promised land. And in this passage of Scripture, what is given us is a, is a pattern for how they're meant to live once they get there. They've left Egypt. They're coming to the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. They're going to enter the promised land How are you meant to live? How are you meant to behave once you enter the land that God is giving you? This passage describes something of that. And it also shows us now today, thousands of years later, shows us something of how we are to respond to God and how we should live. And I especially want to apply this today to offerings we're taking up today and next week for our 2020 vision. We've got plans to... uh, knock this building down and rebuild it and do other things at our other building. And uh, we're giving today and next week as we're doing three times a year seeking to begin to raise money to enable us to move towards doing that. So I especially want to kind of tie this passage to what we're going to do later with our giving. So let me read the passage. I'm going to be Moses, going to read the bits he writes, and then you are going to read the Israelites' response, and grace will help you so you know which bits to read out loud and can do it together rather than some crazy jumble. Okay. When you've entered the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Hey, we've got some baskets. What a fantastic visual aid. Put your first fruits into 
a basket. Then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest should take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your households. Amen. Beautifully read. Well done. What I want to do is um, draw out five principles from what we see here about God's sovereignty and our response to his sovereignty. The first principle is this, that divine authority and human action go together. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we say that God has all power and all authority, the question that people quickly ask then is, well, what does it mean to be human? If God is all-powerful, do my actions actually mean anything, or is it just that God is dictating everything that everybody does? Or people turn the question the other way around and say, well, if we as human beings make our own choices, pursue our own desires, carry out our own actions, does that mean that actually God can't be sovereign? Because if I'm making my, these decisions, doing these things, then God, how can God be fully in control if it's me deciding what to do? And so there's a problem from both ends when you think about the sovereignty of God and human action. And a passage like this really helps us because it doesn't kind of go deep into the philosophical questions that are raised there, but it just practically spells out how this dynamic works. It says, when you enter the land that the Lord, your God, is giving you. You see the dynamic there. Them entering the land is entirely dependent upon God. It's his gift to them. You're going to enter a land that God is giving to you. How are you going to get this land? You're going to get this land because God is sovereign. He has all authority and all power, and he's giving you this land. How are you going to enter this land? When you enter the land, you've got to enter it. There's this kind of divine paradox that works, that God is entirely sovereign, but also we as humans have responsibility. God gives them the land, but they have to enter it. Now, when we think about what we're seeking to do with our 2020 vision, uh, it's a huge and frightening scary prospect that we've set before us. We said that we want to knock this building down and rebuild it, and the kind of sums we're looking at are kind of three or four million pounds. And for us, that seems an extraordinarily unclimbable mountain, probably, to, to climb. How are we going to do that? 
Well, the only way that we can possibly do it is if God enables it, if the sovereign God enables us to somehow raise the kinds of figures we need to be able to do the work that we want to do. But also, we can only do it if we do it, if we commit to the work and somehow make it happen. Now, this isn't to say that we meet God's halfway. It's the kind of thing that people say which is just, just wrong. You don't meet God halfway. And it's not that we are trying to make a bargain with God. We can't bargain with God. He's got everything. How can we make it? What could we give him that we could bargain with him with? That's not how it works. Well, how it works is that God's authority and human action go together. That We need to have a complete trust in the sovereignty of God. That if God has called us to something... God is the one who will enable us to do that thing. But that requires an obedient response on our part, that we do it. That's how it works. Divine authority and human action going together. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, God is sovereign, we are responsible to act. Second principle is to bring your first fruits. In my garden, we've got a number of uh, fruit bushes, and there's one red currant bush which is particularly early. It always comes into leaf much earlier than anything else, and it comes into fruit much earlier than anything else. And I really like soft fruit, and so I always really anticipate the first fruits of that red currant bush. The trouble is that my garden is plagued with wood pigeons, <laughs> and every year the wood pigeons get the first fruits. And we're always going out, chasing off the wood pigeons, sending the dogs out to chase the wood pigeons, sending the children to chase the wood pigeons. I sit in my house looking out the window as the wood pigeons circle around as the berries are still green and not ready to pick. And I know that the wretched wood pigeons are going to eat those red currants just as they're about to turn red before I get to them. And I fantasize about ways in which I might exterminate the world population of wood pigeons because they are stealing my first fruits, which I anticipate so keenly. This year, the netting arrangement... It's going to be industrial. <laughs> Keep the pigeons away. I look at those pigeons, how fat they are with all the fruit from my garden. I think, I, I'd like to eat you, pigeon. <laughs> eat my berries, I'll eat you. Now, for us, you might have a fruit bush in your garden like me, but we're not in an agricultural society, so first fruits maybe doesn't mean so much to us. What, what does it mean? First fruits is the, the first portion, the first priority the most important bit, it's, it's not whatever is left after you've paid all your other bills. It's what comes in first. It's the first fruits. There's a kind of clue in the word there. It's the first fruits, not the last fruits, not the doggy bits at the end fruits. It's the first fruits. And when the people of Israel entered the promised land and they were to bring their first fruits as an offering to God, that was a demonstration of trust. Because imagine, imagine you are in an agricultural society that actually you, you, the only way that you're going to live is by the fruit that you manage to produce. That's how, if you don't have a harvest, you're going to die. You can't go to the shops. You, you, you need this stuff to live. And the first stuff that grows, which you've been keenly anticipating all these months and you've been fighting the pigeons for and all the other pests and diseases, and you finally get a crop and you take the first part of it and you bring it and you give it to God. What's that about? Well, it's... A statement of trust. It's saying, God, I'm banking on you. I'm going to give you this because I believe actually you're going to give me all I need to supply. My, my confidence, my trust for how I'm going to survive isn't in this stuff I produce. Ultimately, it's in you. And so I trust you with the first stuff of my fields because I'm going to trust you that you're going to give me lots more in my fields. 
It's a demonstration of, of dependency. Look at what it says there in verse 10. I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. It's a recognition that actually this first fruit isn't produced in the end because I have produced it. Now I have. I'm the one who's planted the crop. I'm the one who've tended it. I've chased the pigeons away. I've done the work. But ultimately, I'm dependent upon God. If it wasn't for God, the stuff would never grow. There would be no fruit. And so you bring your first fruits as a declaration of dependency upon God. What you're doing is saying, I'm not captain of my soul. Actually, the Lord is. And this first fruits principle sets a pattern for how we should give now to God. That our giving should be the first fruits, the first portion, not the little bit that's left over, not the bit that's left when we've paid all our other bills, but we say, no, the first bit I'm going to give to God because I trust you, God, I'm dependent upon you, God, I'm banking on you, God, I believe you, God. Third principle is this, that we should come with humility. I love verse 5, which you read my father was a wandering Aramean. What's going on there? Why does Moses instruct the people of Israel to say that? It's, it's to remind them of their humble origins. The danger for the people of Israel was that once they entered the promised land, it would quickly become about, look how great we are. Look how great we are. How, look how well we're doing. And that's always the danger for us human beings. We, we take pride in ourselves. We, it might be national pride. Look how great our nation is compared to other nations. It might be family pride. Oh, my family is much better than their family. It might be personal pride. I'm much better than he is. And what Moses instructs the people of Israel here to do is to, is to come with a, a posture of humility that written into Israelite worship was this attitude of humility. Actually, it's not about how great we are. It's about how amazing God is to us. Actually, where we came from wasn't that impressive. Our father was just a wandering Aramean until God in his grace and his mercy and his power chose Abraham and said, from you, I'm going to make a people who will fill the earth. It's all God's grace that we've got where we are. That's the point. And that's true for you and me as well as for these Israelites. You know, I've said it before, all of us go back, all of our, we're all descended from turnip pickers. At some point in our history, our ancestors were scraping turnips out of the mud to survive. Who are we? Our father was a wandering Aramean. Who, who are we? Our father was scraping turnips out of the mud to try and live. That's who we were. And now look at us. Look what God has given us. Look at what God has blessed us with. It's all God's grace. Whatever we have is a gift. It's all grace. You might look at our stuff, our possessions, and say, well, I've worked really hard for this. And you might have done. You might have worked really hard for decades for the stuff that you have. But it's still grace. It's still a gift. There's any number of things that could have intervened along the way which would have meant that all your work could have come to nothing. Your company might have gone bust. You might have been fired. You might have been struck by a car. Something terrible might have happened to you which would have meant that you couldn't have the stuff that you have. The fact that it hasn't is a gift. It's grace. And when we see things that way, it helps loosen our grip on our stuff. keeps us humble. And we're so blessed. There is so much grace to us. I was up in Wimbledon yesterday. I was doing a day's teaching in, in Wimbledon and came back on the train and went from Wimbledon to Clapham Junction, from Clapham Junction and changed again at Woking and then caught the train at Woking and got back to Parkston. And, you know, all the connections worked. Normally when we talk about the trains, we complain when the trains aren't running or there's no space to sit down. But... It is an absolute extraordinary miracle that 
normally the train. The trains, it's so complex. So many miles of track, so many trains, so many people. And I could plan an itinerary, and it worked. The trains turned up to the minute when they were meant to, departed when they were meant to, got back pretty much when they were meant to. And that is a miracle. <laughs> we take it for granted, it's a miracle. We're recipients of so much grace. We've been given so much. And so we should have a humility about us. We should be amazed at God's grace to us. And when we're amazed at God's grace to us, that liberates our pockets, liberates us to give. My father, who, where do I come from? My father was just, not my physical father who's sitting there. He, never, he, hasn't, he hasn't scraped turnips out of the mud. But it's not that long before maybe his great-grandfather, great-grandfather was. That's where we came from. And now look at us. Wow. It's God's grace. Fourth principle is that we should recognize that without God, we were in trouble. This is what the people are to say. Verse 6, we were in Egypt and the e Egyptians ill-treated us. There's a, there's a lot of talk in our day and age about victims and having a victim status. Well, the, the Israelites had a genuine victim status. They had been slaves. They had been ill-treated. They had been abused and they cried out to God, and God rescued them. And our story, my story, your story, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, is that we have been rescued by God as well. His grace has come to us and rescued us. And often it's not until you've kind of crossed the sea, until that moment when you've received the grace of God, that you actually see just what you have been rescued from. It's when you've been forgiven of your sins that you see how appalling your sin was, how far from God you actually were. It's but then that you see that without God, we're like the Israelites were in Egypt, that we're always going to end up enslaved to something unless God rescues us. The gospel is about liberation. It's about rescue. God rescues us. He rescues us from our sins. He rescues us from ourselves. rescues us from our histories. <laughs> rescues us from our enslavement, brings us into freedom. Jesus liberates us. And so when it comes to giving, we give as liberated people. We're not giving as slaves. We're giving as those who've been set free and have been blessed. And the fifth principle is this, that we should come rejoicing. Look at verse 11 again. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. It's good to celebrate your blessings. It's right to celebrate any aspect of your life where there's some milk and honey. Now, we tend to be pessimistic creatures. We tend to always see the downside of things. We tend to be aware of where there's lack. But each of us, somewhere in our lives, experiences some milk and honey. And many of us in our lives actually experience extraordinary levels of milk and honey. The trains running on time is milk and honey. The fact that we have running water in our homes, which practically nobody did a century ago, 150 years ago, did, is, is milk and honey. The fact that we got close to where and there's heating that works is milk and honey. And then many of us have experienced so much milk and honey besides in terms of the love we experience in our families and babies that are born to us and friendships that we have and health that so many of us enjoy and take for granted and the place where we live and the ability to walk along the beach and see the sea and the fact that we get to take holidays and the fact that we have cars and all the things that God blesses us with. There's so many of us have experienced so much milk and honey. And it's right to celebrate. Thank you, God, for pouring so much milk and honey into my life. Thank you, Lord. 
comes as a gift to us. And it comes as a gift, actually, which we're to expect. We're to expect to be blessed. Sometimes we can be a little bit kind of shy, a little bit coy with God on this kind of thing. That, oh, I shouldn't expect to be blessed. No, we're called as a people of God. We're to expect the blessing of God. God brought the people of Israel into a land of milk and honey. He brought them into a place out of slavery to a place of blessing. That's the point. And Jesus has brought us out of slavery to sin and death into a place of blessing. That spiritual blessing, we know the riches of Christ poured into our lives. But spiritual blessing also has to include a measure of material, physical blessing. The two go hand in hand. And so this isn't saying that we see God as a slot machine, put a pound in and expect 10 pounds back. That's not at all what I'm talking about. But we do expect to be blessed by God in our lives. And that includes material blessing looking for some milk and honey. And when we come to give for this 2020 vision, what we want to do here, we're looking for milk and honey. God, would you bless us? Actually, our expectation needs to be that God will bless us, that somehow he will open up the coffers of heaven and enable us to give so we can raise the money we need to and we can get this thing done. So we come rejoicing because we're blessed and we expect blessing. Hallelujah. So we see God's sovereignty displayed in this passage. Let me, I've done a five-point sermon already. Let me make it a nine-point sermon. Four kind of summary things to say about the sovereignty of God we see here. Firstly, he, he is sovereign over where we are. You're here because God has got you here. The place where you live is the place where God has got you to live. How are you meant to respond right here, right now? You're meant to respond by working out the responsibilities that God has also given you. What is your responsibility where you are? What's your, if you're part of this church, what's your responsibility here? If you're a mum, what's your responsibility as a mum? In the town you live, you live in Paul, what's your responsibility to this town? God is sovereign. He's got you where you are now. What are you meant to do here? What's your responsibility? Second principle is that God is sovereign over global politics. Egypt was the superpower of the day. People of Israel were held slave in Egypt, but God was more powerful than the superpower of Egypt. He rescued his people. And God is still sovereign over world events today. Sometimes things happen which completely amaze us. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un sitting down for tea together. I mean, that's just madness. God is sovereign over global events now as he was thousands of years ago. And so we should have a confidence actually about life about how the world is going to play out. shouldn't be pessimistic. Ours is an optimistic story. God rules, he reigns, and one day everybody's going to see that and bow the knee to him. Third summary uh, point to draw is that God is sovereign over our productivity, that everything we have and everything we produce depends upon him. If, you're, if you have particular skills, which means that you can earn more money than most people can, that's not because of you, that's because it's a gift that in the end, God has given you. If you have stuff, if you have more stuff than most people do because your parents, your grandparents are rich and you've inherited from them, well, that's a gift. It's not because of you, it's a gift. The stuff that we have and the stuff we're able to produce is a gift. If you have a job at all, that's a gift. If you work hard, which you're meant to, trust God as you work hard because God is sovereign over our productivity. It's him who causes the fruit to grow. It's him who causes the pigeons to fly. He's sovereign over the whole thing. Sovereign Lord, would you please strike the pigeons? 
And <laughs> last, although they, they are very pretty, I guess. Just not in my garden. He is sovereign over our wallets, our bank accounts. It's all his anyway. It all belongs to him. And that demands a response from us, a response of trust and of worship and of giving. So we're going to do that. We're going to come and we're going to express our trust in him again. We're going to come and worship him again. We're going to sing songs of praise to him. Uh, And we're going to break bread together and take wine together, which is our meal of commemoration, our meal of remembrance, remembering what God has done for us, remembering what happened for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a meal where we celebrate the presence of Jesus amongst us believe that Jesus is here today. It's great that we're here. It's great that you're here. I'm so glad that you are. But Jesus is here amongst us today. And as we come and take the bread and the wine, we're saying, we're, we're saying, Jesus, I trust you. Just like those Israelites were to trust God with their first fruits. We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you. I believe that you're present here today. You're present here to do me good. You're present here so that I might see more of you, know more of you, understand more of you, that my heart might be enlarged with joy because of who you are and and the blessings you've put into my life. And so take the bread and take the wine as a, as, a, as a physical declaration of trust, of faith in Jesus. He's here. And because he's here, we expect stuff to happen. If you need some milk and honey in your life, bring your needs to Jesus. If where you need milk and honey is, is material provision, you need a job or you need a better job or you need some cash because you haven't got enough, Come and ask Jesus. Expect blessing. If your need for milk and honey is physical healing, come to Jesus and ask him to heal you. If your need is something emotional, something happening in your family, bring your need to Jesus and ask him to pour some milk and honey into your life. Come expectant. Jesus is with us. And as we do that, we're also going to come and give. Uh, We're going to give this week and next week for 2020. Uh, You've all got envelopes carefully put out on your seats. If you're giving by cash and you're a gift aid payer, it's really helpful, essential, that we get your name on the gift aid form so we can claim the, the gift aid, which really helps us. Uh, if you're putting a check in, we've got your name already, that's okay. If you're not sure about how to give, maybe you haven't got any money on you, but you want to give, there's details on these envelopes about all the different ways, physical, electronic, online, that you can give. So have a look at that. And so what we're going to do, the Israelites would come and bring their red currants and put them in a basket and give them to the priest. We have some baskets. We're not bringing red currants. Uh, and you're not coming to a priest. We're coming to Jesus. And so as we come, as we take bread and wine, if you've got a gift to give, just put it in the basket and do that as an act of dependence on God, trust in God, faith in God, and joy in God. Amen? Let's stand together. The band will come back. I'll pray. Lord God, thank you so much for what you have done for us. Jesus, thank you that when we come to you in faith, you rescue us. It's this miracle, just as you brought the Israelites out of Egypt, you bring us into freedom. And thank you, Lord, that that's regardless of where we come from, that like the people of Israel, we, Lord, need to come humbly before you and say, yeah, my father, he was just a wandering Aramean. There's nothing about where I come from in itself which is special. I, What I have isn't because of me. In the end, it's because of you and your grace at work in my life. And I pray that would 
produce a response in our hearts, a response of joy and a response of, of trust and a response of generosity. Lord, when we think about what we want to do with our buildings, it does seem a unclimbable mountain, but we know that the sovereign God is able to make the seemingly impossible possible. You're able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And I pray, Lord, that we would see that being worked out in our situation. We'd respond to you in faith, that we would enter into what you've called us to enter and will enable us to possess. So I pray you'd bless us now as we come, as we come and take the bread and the wine, as we sing our songs of praise, as we give our gifts. Lord, pour out your blessing on us and let us be full of the joy of the Lord as we worship you. Amen.